sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having a update on the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Also going to be talking about how the Western powers uh, seemingly uh, had their heads explode uh, over this security deal between the Solomon Islands and China. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Dr. Syed Mohammed Morandi, professor of English Literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Morandi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And doctor, it appears that talks uh, surrounding the Iran nuclear deals have reached uh, a something of a stalemate. I mean, according to reports, there's a roughly 27-page agreement that is uh, more or less uh, ready to go. But the chief sticking point seems to be, uh, as it pertains to Iran and the U.S., the status around the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which the U.S. placed on its list of foreign terrorist organizations in 2019 as a part of uh, then-President Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign um, against Iran. And so uh, I was hoping you could help us understand just what is uh, happening here with the nuclear deal, Doctor, and uh, whether you see any prospects for real resolution. Um. Well, there are a number of issues. One is with regards to the status of the guards where the United States has declared it a foreign terrorist organization. And of course, the Iranians have reciprocated and uh, they've designated the U.S. Uh, forces in the Persian Gulf region as a, uh, as a terrorist entity. But uh, the main issue is not really about the designation of the armed forces of the Iranians or the Americans as terrorist organizations by the other side. The main issue, in my opinion, is, uh, I think, focus on, on, on two areas. One is, and there are other issues I should point out, but the two main areas that I think are important are with regards to uh, assurances. The United States has not given uh, businesses or potential businesses or potential companies and corporations who want to invest in Iran assurances that if they pull out of the deal, those entities that invest in Iran won't be sanctioned. Now, that's key for Iran because if, let's say, a, an investor wants to come to Iran and uh, wants to, let's say, uh, invest in an oil field or invest in uh, a refinery or, uh, or build a petrochemical plant. Uh, and let's say the Americans, Biden decides to pull out of the deal. What happens to that investment? The United States has not given the assurances necessary for the Iranians that those investments will be safe. Now, that's a key sticking point because the Iranians are saying if the Americans don't give these assurances to those people who want to invest in Iran, that if the Americans suddenly pull out, they won't be harmed, well, then no one is going to invest in the country. 
the Americans are stonewalling, and uh, that is a key sticking point. Because for the Iranians, it is absolutely necessary for potential investors to feel safe and secure. Another issue is the sanctions list. There are a large number of people and entities that are sanctioned by the United States because they violated the U.S. sanctions. And the U.S. sanctions are, of course, in accordance with international law. They're illegal. They're not legal. And the Iranians are saying that these people on the sanctions list, many of them have to be removed. The Americans are stonewalling again. For the Iran, for the Iranian side, it's important for these people or, or, the, or these entities be, to be removed for two reasons. One is that these people were sanctioned illegally in the first place. And they were sanctioned because they were basically trying to help ordinary Iranians. They were importing machinery for the food industry, let's say. And the United States sanctioned them for doing that. They, they imported uh, equipment to create the Iranian vaccine. And they were sanctioned for that and, and other issues as well. So for the Iranians, it's important that these people who've helped the country and who've aided ordinary people, that they should be removed from the sanctions list. But it, but it also has another level of significance. And that is that if these people are not removed from the sanctions list and the United States decides to leave the deal again, like it did under Trump, then in future, people will not be... Uh, they will not have an, an incentive to to help the Iranian people break the sanctions uh, because they'll see that the people who aided the Iranian people before, they were sanctioned and the Iranian government was indifferent towards removing them from the sanctions list. So it it, uh, it is necessary for the Americans to uh, to shift their position both on the sanctions list as well as with regards to assurances to investors. So the issue of the guards is an issue. It is a, an issue, but it is not really the key issue. The key issue it lies in the uh, and issues that are linked to the economic well-being of ordinary Iranians. Yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that, Doctor. And... <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, based on what you're saying, doctor, and I definitely appreciate the, the clarification there, you know, what then is the motivation of the United States government to sort of have these uh, uh, outstanding issues that they don't seem particularly interested in really moving on, as you described? I mean, the U.S. government, at least by its own pronouncements, seems to want there you know, to be some movement on the Iran nuclear deal, but yet continue to be the main obstacle to the deal going through. And I mean, why do you think that is? I think the real issue goes back to the fact that the United States has been a super a superpower for a very long time. And especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States had become used to getting its way. So they've really lost the ability to negotiate and also to abide by their commitments because they feel they don't have to. They feel that other countries have to bow down to them, that uh, they, everyone has to be deferential to the empire. And my experience with Americans, both during the 2015 negotiations, which I was also involved in, I was in Vienna during the negotiating process for the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, and I was in Vienna for the 
more recent negotiations. My experience is that the United States tries to have its cake and eat it too. It tries to uh, gain concessions without giving anything. And then when it does give concessions, it expects the other side to abide by their commitments, but it by no means feels obliged to abide by its commitments. And the political establishment of the United States encourages this, and so does the Western media. Because I think that the ideology of American exceptionalism of, uh, of a Eurocentric or Westocentric or American-centered world is something that they believe in. And therefore, they believe that they are exceptional, that they have more rights and privileges, that they're more civilized, that they're more human than the rest of us, to put it bluntly. And therefore, if, let's say, the Iranians abide by their commitments, the Iranians are supposed to abide by their commitments. But if the Americans don't abide by their commitments, no one in the United States is going to make an issue of it. The New York Times or the Washington Post or, or members of uh, Congress or the Senate, no one is going to say, no one is going to you know, protest that the United States is behaving poorly or the United States is violating its commitments or international law because they don't believe that the United States needs to do so. And this makes any negotiations with the United States, I, I don't want to say impossible, I don't want to say virtually impossible, but it is really almost fair to say virtually impossible. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, when you make this point, which I think is true of the U.S. and the West sort of seeing itself as, you know, more human, more worthy of human consideration than uh, countries like Iran and and certainly others uh, uh, around the globe that we could name, particularly in the global south. I mean, that to me points to a kind of Orientalism that, that seems to always be shot through uh, U.S. dealings with Iran and uh, a number of other countries as well. I mean, this kind of, uh, you know, white supremacist othering of other countries with different systems, different cultures, different definitions of uh, democracy and governments. And I just feel like that's never that far from the surface when we look at um, these efforts by uh, the U.S. I mean, frankly, just to uh, retain control both over uh, the region and the globe. Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, the Orientalism is, is very plain and open uh, for people to see. And one of the ironies, of course, is the war in Ukraine, regardless of the fact that the Russians, who, I mean, who, who's responsible or, and who's not. Obviously, in my personal opinion, uh, the Russian invasion is not justified. But I would blame NATO more than anyone else for this state of affairs. The, the, the fact that NATO expanded eastwards and violated its pledge to the Russian government, despite and the NATO uh, countries, especially the United States, carry, helped carry out a coup in, in Kiev, in Ukraine. And uh, they supported fascists and neo-Nazi groups in, in Ukraine. All of these were uh, you know, uh, unacceptable, and they push the Russians towards this situation. So both both sides are to blame, but I would blame NATO mostly. But the point is, regardless of who's to blame, even now when we look at how Russia and Russians are being depicted in the mainstream media, on CNN, on, on the BBC, on, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fox News, they're being depicted 
as racially inferior. The, the, the language used to describe Russians is truly outrageous. And you see senior Western politicians in their Twitter accounts uh, comparing Russians to orcs. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's really despicable and disgusting, yet um, it's, it's plain for everyone to see it. We see how many people are con- conditioned to see the world that way. And Russia, Russians, they're probably, on the whole, at least Russians in Europe, are probably more white than, than Americans and Europeans. But still, that otherization is there. Now, the rest of the global south is much worse. So let's let's compare. Let's imagine that in Ukraine, Russia was the only side to blame. Let's say that it's really Russia's fault. The war in Yemen is incomparably worse than Ukraine. The the Saudi Arabian Emirates, with Western support, have carried out a starvation siege for years. They've been starving tens of millions of people. This is unprecedented in contemporary human history. But there's no outrage in the Western media. There never was any outrage. In fact, there's always this justification for the Saudis trying to pretend that the people of Yemen are Iranian proxies or somehow they want to justify the fact that they've been helping the Saudis murder all these people. Or the dirty war in Syria, where the Americans and NATO and their regional despotic allies have been supporting ISIS and al-Qaeda and other extremists, where we saw how Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor today, Back then, when he was working for Hillary Clinton, wrote in an email to her on February the 12th, 2012, that in Syria, al-Qaeda is on our side. Imagine that. Ten years, a little more than ten years after 9-11, the United States is on the same side of the battlefield with al-Qaeda. And so, but that's not something that Western media will protest. That's not something American media will protest. Why? Because the United States has disregards the global south for non-Europeans. Why? Because they're exceptional. Because the Americans believe that whatever they do is not a crime. It may be a mistake, but it's not a crime. America, so you, you, no one will say on CNN that Obama is a war criminal, which he was and is. No one will say that Trump is a war criminal, unless it's for internal U.S. political purposes and the hostility that exists between the two factions. Today. But no one will blame Trump for carrying out atrocities against Iranians, which he did, or supporting the Saudis in Yemen, or, you know, or Biden himself, who was the vice president uh, during Obama, during the Yemen atrocities or the destruction of Libya, or when he supported the war in Iraq. And this, Iraq is, I think, one of the most extraordinary chapters of contemporary human history. The United States and the Europeans created Saddam Hussein so that he could invade Iran. He could invade my country. They gave him chemical weapons. They gave him the military intelligence to use those weapons. And they gave him the political cover to get away with using those weapons. And only after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait did chemical weapons suddenly become an issue. And then they demonized the person who was their ally before. So the United States and the Europeans, their governments can behave completely in in a completely immoral fashion. They can commit crimes against humanity and uh, they can get away with it. And they still consider themselves to be more civilized. And if someone exposes them, like Julian Assange, he will die in jail. 
Yeah, so many contradictions there. So many contradictions, Doctor. I definitely, on the one hand, I definitely agree with your analysis of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I, I don't support it either. And, and I, too, uh, place the blame uh, squarely on NATO for uh, uh, sort of exacerbating or really creating the situation for this whole thing to happen. And it has been honestly kind of fascinating to see the 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 sort of how race has played into this with you know Ukraine being framed as this kind of pure white country meanwhile Russia being made to look you know less white and less European and therefore more <laughs> villainous at least in the eyes of the world so we see how this kind of uh, orientalism this racism is weaponized at uh, a key junctures to push these imperialist desires forward and you you noted uh, and I think it's relevant and, you know, uh, the issues around, you know, Saudi Arabia and the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And, and it makes me wonder, doctor, then uh, 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 swinging back to the, the Iran nuclear deal itself is, you know, what are the stakes for the region, for Western Asia and for the Middle East, you know, as it pertains to uh, uh, the Iran nuclear deal? Like, what, what do you see are the sort of uh, regional ripple effects there? Well, I think as the Western Empire declines, uh, the United States will be needing to have better, will need better relations with Iran in future. Because the United States is no longer uh, in a position where it can control the rest of the world. This is not the 1990s. You have countries like Russia and China that have been on the rise. I mean, the United States and the Europeans have constantly been. Uh, ridiculing Russia and saying that it's not a power, but let's look, let's look at the reality. They expected the ruble to collapse when they imposed sanctions, and the ruble today is in a better position than it was before the war. The Russians are obviously advancing in Ukraine. Probably the Russians underestimated the uh, resistance that they'd face, but they're still winning the war. And we see that the sanctions that were imposed on Russia are taking a huge toll on the economy in Europe and in the United States. So basically, the Americans and the Europeans have sanctioned themselves as well. So the world has changed. The United States is not the power that it was before. And then we have China, then we have India, we have Latin America, we have Iran. So Iran is a key power in West Asia. In fact, it is the most important power in West Asia. And along with its allies, it is by far the most important power in West Asia. The United States, in order to cut costs, in order for it to be able to alleviate the problems at home, it has to come to some sort of arrangement with Iran. Now, whether it's detente or rapprochement, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different discussion. But the more the United States has tensions with Iran, the more costly it is for the United States. And I don't think the United States, as things stand, with the economy as it is, with the uh, diminished, relatively speaking, diminished status that it has on the global stage, that the United States can really afford to continue with its hostile policies towards Iran. It hasn't worked. The maximum pressure sanctions have failed. And Iran, and Iran today is uh, much more powerful than it was a decade or two ago. So it is for the it is to the benefit of the United States and the Europeans for the Americans to come to an agreement. Iran is still waiting for the Americans to uh, take a reasonable stance and, and sign the deal.
but we'll have to wait and see. I'm not sure that Biden has the political will to do so. He's a, he's a weakened, as you we all know. We've seen his poll numbers, and the Democrats are doing very poorly. And I think he doesn't have the confidence right now uh, to to sign a deal. But we have to wait and see. I think as the war in Ukraine goes on, the United States will need will see that it needs better relations with Iran more than before. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Morandi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Simply stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the West constructing a new Monroe Doctrine in the Pacific region. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Carlos Martinez, author and activist and the co-founder of No Cold War and the co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Carlos, here recently, the government of the Solomon Islands, under the leadership of Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare, uh, signed a security deal with China. And in doing so, uh, uh, seemingly compelled the leadership of the Western powers to collectively lose their minds. I mean, they reacted very uh, uh, negatively to the whole situation, which is uh, kind Kind of strange considering that, I mean, there's nothing particularly remarkable uh, about this security deal between the Solomon Islands and China. Indeed, the Solomon Islands, you know, has similar deals with other countries. And it, it, it seems to me that particularly when we talk about the Solomon Islands, which is not a country that is prominent in the consciousness, at least of people in the United States, um, that we would see this. And it honestly just feels part and parcel of a broader issue of the West sort of a campaign against the rise of China. And so to begin, Carlos, I actually have a a two-part question. Number one, I was hoping you could sort of explain and break down the details of this security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands and why it has elicited this kind of response from the West. Sure. Uh, Well, as you pointed out, you know, it's not a particularly unusual or special cooperation agreement. Actually, Solomon Islands has similar deals in place, similar security cooperation arrangements in place with Australia, with Papua New Guinea, with New Zealand, with Fiji. And President Sogavares very specifically said, look, we're not looking to kick anyone out. We're not looking to get rid of the Australians, but we're trying to diversify our security relationships and to you know respond to our security needs, our national security needs. You know, Solomon Islands is a country with, you know, uh, quite complex security needs. It's got about 700,000 people. It's got is composed of uh, several hundred islands, six six main islands, and and many smaller islands. With you know, it's you know, and as a nation, it's characterized by 
quite intense inequality, serious poverty, problems in terms of health outcomes, problems in terms of educational outcomes. There are all the usual problems of sustained underdevelopment and trying to recover from that colonial period. So there's inter-ethnic rivalries, inter-island rivalries. And, and meanwhile, the Solomon Islands doesn't have its own army, for example. So it has security agreements with other countries to help meet its, meet its needs. Um, previously, Australia has been very dominant in that field. And Australia maintains, I think, 115 troops on the Solomon, Solomon Islands. It has a long-standing security agreement. Um, and there's an agreement in place such that Australia can deploy armed police to the Solomon Islands. So the, this deal between the PRC and the Solomon Islands just brings China into that equation. Um, and the response has been, you know, has been quite extreme. You know, if, if you look at Australia in particular, I mean, it's election season in Australia at the moment, the federal elections are coming up. So both the, the government of the governing Liberal Party and the opposition Labour Party are sort of trying to leverage the situation to make accusations against each other. So you've got Anthony Albanese, the leader of the, Liberal, the Labour Party, saying that this is a massive foreign policy failure. You've got the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, trying to sort of bolster his anti-China credentials. He's saying, you know, China's an autocratic nation. It's not playing by the normal rules. Um, you, you, you've got people, you, for example, Karen Andrews, the Home Affairs Minister, talked about how this, this is very worrying because the Solomon Islands is, is our backyard. And this is very, very reminiscent of the Monroe Doctrine, right? And, and it's so hypocritical for Australia, which, as we have said, has already got an existing security agreement with the Solomon Islands. Um, you know, why does Australia care so much? And the truth is because it takes its role as deputy sheriff, as described by former President George W. Bush, very seriously. Um, you know, you, you've, you've got something very similar coming from the United States. You had uh, Crichton Brink, the Assistant Secretary of State for the region, who packed his bags uh, for Solomon Islands. He issued various threats. He kind of strongly implied that if China were to establish a military base in the area, then the, the U.S. response what he, to what he called significant concerns would be some kind of U.S. military action. So the overall picture is that what the US and its deputy sheriff Australia expect is hegemony over the South Pacific. And that's part of their program of China containment, part of their program of China encirclement, part of their program of an escalating new Cold War, which is trying to suppress China, destabilize China, prevent China's rise. Yeah, I mean, the threats are, are just so blatant. And, and so is this just racist paternalism that we're seeing from Australia and the West uh, uh, as it pertains to this issue. And you published a piece about this, Carlos, with the Friends of Socialist China, which I encourage people to check out at socialistchina.org. And in it, you quote uh, David Llewellyn Smith, who's the uh, founding publisher and former editor-in-chief of The Diplomat, which folks may be familiar with. And, you know, he literally said that Australian armed forces should, quote, invade and capture Guadalcanal, which is in the Solomon Islands, such that we engineer regime change. So, like, literally openly calling for an invasion of the Solomon Islands 
Orleans to achieve uh, a different government that, you know, we can only assume uh, uh, would be sufficiently uh, obeisant to the government in Sydney. And even just this morning, I I saw that um, there was a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald. I believe it was published yesterday um, or actually I I believe it was uh, published today. But it's, it's an opinion piece by this guy named Mick Ryan that says China's deal with the Solomons is an act of colonization. And it's just it's like you're Australia, like you're literally a settler colony, just like the United States, just like uh, Canada. And in a way, it almost reminds me of how, you know, the U.S. did the same kind of finger wagging at a different governments in Africa, warning about, you know, China uh, colonizing or being an imperialist power on the African continent. So it's just the most uh, uh, incredible kind of hypocrisy that we're seeing from a uh, uh, the West here, uh, Carlos, which I think, unfortunately, is entirely predictable. And it seems that in reality, uh, the real issue at hand, of course, is not any sort of true concern for the Solomon Islands, either the government or the people, but rather um, about the West. Um, sort of this ongoing anti-China campaign and basically trying to stop uh, China's uh, peaceful rise. And in reality, it it feels like it's a part of this whole um, new Cold War sort of situation that we find ourselves in as it pertains to this. And and as such, uh, we see the West relying on, you know, a a white supremacy and militarism to to address this. Yeah, that's right. And and this current sort of crisis going on in the South Pacific goes back a few years. Um, you know, I mean, to just give a very quick overview of the history, um, I mean, Solomon Islands has been around for a long time, and it's it's known to have been populated by humans for you know, upwards of 30,000 years. It was colonized in the 1890s by Britain uh, and was, was named the British Solomon Islands Protectorate. It, uh, it actually kept that name until 1978. Uh, it finally got its independence um, at, at that time, the Queen continues. The Queen of England continues to be its head of state, but it had basically been forgotten about and kind of left to flounder. And you know the relationship that the U.S. and the Western European imperialist countries have with these type of places that essentially no one in the West has heard of in the Pacific is well, you you know you 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 do what we tell you to. We you vote the way we tell you to at the UN General Assembly. And, you know, your check will be in the post. It'll turn up at some point. But meanwhile, you know, Solomon Islands and the countries around it are dealing with underdevelopment. They're dealing with poverty. They're dealing with the legacy of colonialism. They've got, you know, very pervasive um, Western culture and hyper-consumerism that they're constantly exposed to. You've got crime, tension, the conflicts between the different islands that we talked about. And no one really cared that much about the Solomon Islands until 2019. And this present government under Sogavari decided that it needed to shift its kind of strategic orientation a little bit, and specifically to change its position vis-a-vis China, because it was one of the countries, um, essentially under US instruction, that had bilateral relations with Taiwan rather than with the People's Republic. So in 2019, it shifted its allegiance. And so now, you know, that I think now there's only 12 or 13 countries that still have bilateral relations with Taiwan. 
Um, and at the same time, the government announced that it was going to join the Belt and Road Initiative and that it would be massively expanding its trade, massively expanding its investment relationship with China. And that's, you know, that's that's just common sense. Like that's a no brainer for countries like the Solomon Islands that are there in the Pacific. They'll want to attract investment. They'll want to have more trade. They'll want to have cooperation on health, on education, on housing and so on. And, and, and it's already reaping benefits in the sense that there's been a lot of cooperation with China around managing COVID, including the vast majority of the COVID-19 vaccinations that have been rolled out in Solomon Islands have come from China. So the, you know, that makes sense for the islands. Um, but you know, imperialism, as, as you say, the, the US and the Australian governments have, have lost their minds. And it's incredibly hypocritical because actually they both have deep trade links with the PRC. They both have bilateral relations, not with Taiwan, but with Beijing. But, you know, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a question of, you know, do what we say, not what we do. The status they want for the Solomon Islands is for it to be a client state. Do what we tell you and wait for your check. So the idea that that country would make independent decisions surrounding foreign policy orientation is just anathema to the West. And, you know, Washington responded immediately in 2019 by causing as much trouble as it possibly could, specifically encouraging protests, encouraging an anti-government opposition, mainly based on Malaita, which is the most populous island in, in the Solomon Islands. Protesters went to the capital. They protested against the central government. They caused riots. There were um, there was specific targeting of Chinatown and China-owned businesses. And Malaita, meanwhile, has been maintaining its own independent links with Taiwan. And it's been paid for this. You know, the US sweetened the deal with a check for $25 million, which for a small island, which the previous year had received about 2% of that figure in aid, is, is a huge sum. So the US and Australia are doing whatever they can to try and prevent Solomon Islands and other similar countries in the Pacific from reorienting their foreign policy towards China. You know, it's not like any of these countries are saying, you know, get out Australia, get out US, we don't want to have relations with you anymore. They're just trying to find their way in a rising multipolar world. But you know, the, the, the converse of that and the big picture is that there's this escalating new Cold War, as you've said. It's led by the US. It's directed primarily against China. And the Pacific is a really important battlefield. You've got the US bolstering its Indo-Pacific command. And, you know, the commander of the Indo-Pacific command, I think just today or yesterday, talked about how he sees the Indo-Pacific command essentially becoming a Pacific NATO. The US is increasing its so-called freedom of navigation assertion missions in the South China Sea. It's increasing its weapons sales to Taiwan, its military cooperation with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia. They're using war games like the massive RIMPAC exercises in, um, in, in, Hawaii, uh, in Hawaii, after Hawaii, sorry, in Hawaii, joint exercises to strengthen the military relationship with regional allies. And then they've recently announced this AUKUS, you know, this Australia, UK, US pact of white colonizers in the Pacific, um, which essentially, again, seeks to take NATO global. And part of that overall project is maintaining client states in the Pacific. And, you know, client states don't have security arrangements with China. They're not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So, you know, that's that's the, the big picture behind, you know, this specific microcosm of Pacific conflict that we're seeing right now.
Yeah, and I think it's important how you note sort of the role of Australia as a junior partner to the United States uh, and really an outpost of U.S. imperialism in the region. And I, I think it was George W. Bush that actually called Australia, you know, a deputy sheriff. And I think that that's a pretty accurate description of how uh, uh, Washington sees its relationship with Australia. And, and it's so relevant that uh, uh, you raise um, this AUKUS uh, uh, organization or, or, or agreement if you will, because as you note in your piece, it's another point of hypocrisy because the U.S. and Australia and the West are, you know, they're all offended uh, uh, seemingly because the Solomon Islands didn't consult them uh, uh, about this um, uh, a deal with China. But, you know, no one consulted with China about, you know, the, the formulation of AUKUS and particularly with all this talk about the quote unquote international rules based order and this uh, 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 supposed issue of China breaking rules, quote unquote rules. In reality, I mean, AUKUS is actually illegal. I mean, it, it violates a nuclear non-proliferation uh, uh, treaty, uh, also violates, you know, weapons uh, free zones established in, in the region. But see, all of that is fine because it plays into the plans of uh, uh, the Western imperialist power. But when these global South countries who are, uh, you know, who have the audacity to try to act in their own interest and, you know, uh, uh, trying to sort of find their way, like you say, Carlos, in a, a sort of a, a burgeoning multipolar world. Well, now that is the cause for threats and attacks and, and all these sorts of things. And so, I mean, what it seems to really boil down to then, uh, uh, Carlos, when we really get to the root of it, like with so many things, um, Washington and its, you know, satellites, or as I like to call it, you know, Uncle Sam and his little friends, their chief concern is, you know, full spectrum dominance, regardless of what they say about human rights or democracy or sovereignty or what have you. What uh, these powers really want is an unquestioned control of not just the Pacific region, but of the whole of the earth. And since China and its Belt and Road Initiative uh, is uh, seen as an obstacle to that, well, then it must be uh, uh, made a target. And it just seems like that kind of clarity around the situation is needed, particularly in the West, where, you know, there's so much demonization of China in so many ways. Yeah, exactly. You know, the security agreement is, yeah, in terms of uh, precedent and international law, it's perfectly normal, perfectly legal. You know, um, it's it's an agreement between the governments of two sovereign states, which have every legitimate right to uh, to establish agreements between each other. Um, entirely different to AUKUS, which is you know the Pacific military infrastructure of Cold War, a deal with three countries only one of which is actually in the region. You know, China wasn't consulted about it. Solomon Islands certainly wasn't consulted about it. But it includes the United Kingdom, which is, you know, the former largest empire in the world, <laughs> um, which, which had colonies, you know, all over the Pacific, including Australia. They're involved, but China isn't involved and Solomon Islands isn't involved. So as you said, it's incredibly hypocritical to, to complain about so-called uh, secretiveness of the Chinese and of the Solomon Islanders in establishing this agreement. And the other thing that they're making a lot of noise about is, is the suggestion that the Chinese could build a military base on, on the Solomon Islands. Now, there's nothing in the agreement indicating that 
a, a base will be built. Um, and the Chinese, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have specifically described that as fake news. But also, does no one in the US political class or media class think to ask, well, what, what exactly what leg does the US have to stand on? Because the US has got 800 foreign overseas military bases, hundreds of them in the Pacific, in South Korea, in Japan, in Okinawa, in Australia, in the Philippines, in Guam, another US colony. So what principle is it acting on here? You know, and, it, and I think it's clear to anyone who seriously thinks about it that there's only one principle at work, which is the principle of hegemony. It's the principle of imperialism. It's the principle of the US declaring itself and acting as the policeman of the world. You know, the US uh, you know, feigns outrage about what Russia is doing in Ukraine, that it's a violation of international law. So the US is suddenly talking about the need to uphold what it calls a rules-based international order. Well, we've got a rules-based international order. It's the UN Charter. It's international law. It's the United Nations. And the US very clearly doesn't work within that rules-based international order. The US acts as a rogue state, as a corrupt sheriff issuing threats alongside it's Deputy Sheriff in Canberra. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Carlos, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Absolutely. And Chris, you know, one of the most pressing issues that we see happening in the U.S. right now is the issue of uh, student loan debt as uh, the government continues to refuse to simply forgive it, though reportedly the Biden administration may be toying with the idea of some kind of relief. But even this has uh, implications for um, tech issues as uh, it's being reported that the FAFSA website where people go to apply for student uh, student aid online has uh, some kind of connection or interlinking with uh, Facebook. And I was hoping you could uh, just help us understand uh, just what that looks like and what it means, really. Yeah, so this is really important to understand. This falls under the, the U.S. Department of Education. This is a federal department that on one of its websites had some Facebook integration happening that you don't even see. And this happens on so many websites. Even if they don't have that Facebook share button or login with Facebook, it's very easy for a, a site owner, a developer to add, you know, a Facebook tracking pixel and some tracking code in. That basically just helps Facebook collect a little information about who's visiting. And of course, that information is then used in order to sell advertisements. So 
what the FAFSA website had on it was not just that tracking information, but also some additional code that sent additional information like names uh, to Facebook, as well as email addresses, zip codes, and a little bit more. Uh, And that was a purposeful decision that was made by the people who put together this website, which, again, is the Department of Education. Um, It was part, and they said this, of a March advertising campaign, um, which is just, it's ridiculous that, that, you know, the Department of Education needs to be using uh, these advanced Facebook features in order to be doing advertising. Uh, They could just, you know, they should just be forgiving student debt. I mean, but that's, you know, a whole other topic maybe for another segment. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the fact that Facebook got this information, and by the way, they get it whether or not you have an account. So even if you don't have an account or you weren't logged into your Facebook account, you know, in the on the computer or in the web browser that you were using, they got all of this information from this website. And unfortunately, they're in retro, you know, after the fact, there's nothing that can be done about it um, in, in terms of the fact that Facebook has this data. It can hold this for up to a year. Wow. And I mean, you know, seemingly it just feels like it, it, it feels increasingly like there's almost nothing that uh, you can do online at all that that there isn't some kind of uh, uh, issue of your data being stolen or tracked or sold or, or things like this. And that even, you know, uh, bleeds over into people's love lives, apparently. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that uh, user data from the dating app Grindr um, has uh, uh, been sold for years. And so, you know, how does this work, Chris? And, you know, how is it that these apps are able to, you know, do this sort of thing? Well, I I will say this. In a case like the uh, FAFSA website where it's sending your information to Facebook, one thing you can do is install an ad blocker on your browser or on Mm. your phone. Uh, The one I prefer is called uBlock Origin, um, and that'll block a lot of these trackers and things like that. So if you had that installed, it actually wouldn't be sending the info necessarily to Facebook. But yeah, I mean, on this question of Grindr, we talked a while ago about a priest who was outed and basically uh, kicked out of his church because his information was found in a uh, in some data from Grinder, and it showed that he was going to gay clubs and then going to people's houses. Uh, what we have now, and this is coming out of the Wall Street Journal and some other publications, are that uh, Grinder is actually selling all of this information. Uh, to data firms, these shady companies that then collect and package this data and then resell it to others who want to use it. And it becomes almost impossible to track, once your name is on one of these lists, um, to track where it came from and how many different companies it went through uh, to get to the source. So the data didn't have stuff like names and phone numbers, but what it did have were locations. It was phone movement information, so tracking where you start, where you end up, where you go before and after and in the middle, which is dangerous enough. 
we know that if you have enough location information, you can identify a person, particularly if you have multiple days or longer of that, because then you can see, okay, they usually go here at night and then they go here during the day. So let's guess that this is their home and this is their workplace or school or whatever else it is they do during the day. Um, and from the, that home address and combined with a institution like a work, you know, workplace, you can then kind of, you know, file it down, kind of identify who somebody is. And that's seemingly also what happened to this, uh, this priest a little while ago. So looking at, um, you know, looking at the fact that Grinder is doing this, I mean, it makes it extremely dangerous, uh, you know, not just for people in the U.S., but people who use Grinder around the world um, in countries that, you know, have laws even worse than some states in the U.S. in, uh, you know, trying to punish or criminalize, you know, uh, homosexual behavior. So the idea that you can get this information um, and then, you know, buy it from Grinder or another uh, you know, or, or another service, and then be outed, basically. It could actually put people at real risk for their safety, for their jobs, or even their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty troublesome when we look at how uh, this private information, our private information, is made so vulnerable by uh, different platforms and things like this. And I feel like this is really like the crux of a lot of this issue is when we talk about uh, privacy, Chris, something that, I mean, it has just it continues to be eroded more and more here in the U.S. as uh, time goes on. And it's something that I think is it, it, it seems like it's done sort of so uh, subtly and, and not not overtly, and I don't think that's uh, an accident. I mean, they're not going to put like a glowing neon sign that says we're taking your data. But it, it feels like the sort of uh, thing that's happening really right underneath the noses of people who are trying to do things as simple as apply for student aid or just be on a dating app like a lot of people are in the 21st century. You know what I mean? And so it seems that even the most, uh, you know, mundane of uh, uh, tasks are perhaps uh, or have the potential at least to be a kind of threat to our privacy and our data. And as such, it just feels like, you know, uh, there needs to be a real democratization of these platforms and of the Internet itself. And frankly, I think of a lot of these uh, tech companies to really reel that back in so that, you know, people can actually be safe and so that their information can be safe as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And this makes me think of, you know, a lot of the hype around Elon Musk saying that he would open source the, the Twitter algorithm. But that algorithm is still meant to target us and make us stay on the site. Open sourcing it would just let us understand how it works. It wouldn't actually do anything for the fact that these algorithms take advantage of us or these data companies, you know, take advantage of our very existence, our digital existence in order to do, you know, to gather all of this information. Look, data is a resource, right? It is a, it is kind of, it is raw material. And what these companies do is process it, just like you would process claw, you know, uh, wood or steel or any other raw material in order to make a product and sell it. The difference is that this is something that we create 
naturally as people. And I think that's something that has been hard to, I think, get people's minds around is that, you know, we are not doing work for these companies. They are taking advantage of the fact that we live in, uh, you know, a culture in a world where, you know, digital communications uh, is the norm and is absolutely necessary. So, you know, looking at the way that we should understand the economics of this is that there are these extractive and exploitative industries uh, like the advertising industry, like the data brokers, and so many others that are taking this information that we have generated and making this giant profit off of it without any concern for the well-being of the people who are impacted, just as, you know, cutting down uh, an old-growth forest to make, you know, paper or out of, you know, the pulp or whatever is going to, uh, you know, destroy that forest, and they do it without any concern for the environment. Yeah, and there's a geopolitical aspect to this, I think, too, Chris, because the same uh, U.S. government that uh, basically allows this violation uh, of our policy is also trying to weaponize the idea of a free and open Internet against the countries that it deems as its uh, enemies. I mean, uh, recently we've seen this uh, declaration for uh, the future of the Internet, and, you know, it's a uh, non-binding sort of document. But it just seems to me like yet another uh, plank or another spoke in the wheel of Washington's uh, uh, sort of war, if you will, this uh, what we call a new Cold War sort of era uh, aimed at Russia and China. And, and so on the one hand, we have a, a system that, you know, basically sees us as, you know, sources for, you know, milking private information and data. While on the other, U.S. imperialism is also trying to uh, use the Internet um, as a, a, a weapon against countries that, you know, don't pose an existential threat uh, to the United States, but in reality, you know, only pose a threat to uh, uh, this ruling class that wants to maintain uh, world dominance. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is an announcement from um, April 28th. And the White House official headline on this is the United States and 60 global partners launch declaration for the future of the Internet. Well, if we look at who those 60 global partners are, um, there are three of them that are not U.N. members, uh, like the European Commission. Um, and also, 50, uh, the, the majority of the, the UN members who, who are partners in this declaration also went along with the U.S. condemnation of Russia uh, recently in the UN. Um, the only three holdouts uh, that are on this list but weren't on that were Cabo Verde, Kenya, and Niger. What this declaration says, and it's so ironic that we're talking about this, it is May 3rd, we're talking about this on uh, International Press Freedom Day, and in the first paragraph, it says we're witnessing a trend of rising digital authoritarianism where states do things like uh, censor independent news sites and repress freedom of expression. And of course, Julian Assange is still in prison at the behest of the United States. So that's just one of the many pieces of hypocrisy in here. Um, they also, they mentioned in the press release and in the document itself, authoritarianism 
over and over again. And then they talk about, you know, the fact that uh, people shouldn't be spied on by their governments. Well, the U.S. and the other five eyes and nine eyes and 14 eyes countries, and these are groups that do um, signals, intelligence, information gathering, and then share with that with each other. Uh, the U.S. and these countries couldn't even uphold that promise. So it's a good thing for them that this is a non-binding document, but it is a propaganda document. It is basically saying that uh, the U.S. is going to set the rules but not follow them, but use them as an excuse to punish Russia and China. Well, we have to understand, like, I, you know, as much as anyone, think we should have a global free Internet where people, you know, everywhere can collaborate and communicate and share information. But we have to respect the rights of self-determination for all nations to determine what it is that they need. And it's not up to the U.S. government to tell people and tell governments around the world what human rights are according to them, because that has never, ever worked out. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right when you call this um, a propaganda uh, uh, document here, Chris. It's funny, uh, you know, folks in the U.S. seem to think that, you know, propaganda is only something that the bad guys do or, or the bad uh, countries. But this is just part and parcel of that broader deal. And it's just clear, you know, with all these issues from the geopolitical uh, aspect of things to the social aspect of things and to how this sort of filters into everyday life, I mean, it's clear that there are interests that are going to continue to, you know, opportunistically use and weaponize uh, the Internet, these platforms, our data and things like that towards our own end. And as such, uh, we definitely got to fight for a truly democratic way of using these uh, resources that are, in fact, really important. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also download our shows at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And as we always do at this time, we're streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we most certainly want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Chuck Modiano, 
justice journalist and sports writer for Deadspin. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here, Sean, as always. Absolutely. And of course, Chuck, uh, the main thing uh, happening in the U.S. right now is this uh, leak of this draft opinion by the Supreme Court that uh, seems to imply that they would seek to overturn Roe versus Wade and in doing so, uh, uh, basically uh, cut off uh, abortion rights to millions of women across the United States. And, you know, even though uh, this leak was published uh, somewhat late at night, people still came into the streets. I mean, here in Washington, D.C., there were hundreds of people that went down uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, They even set up barricades uh, in preparation uh, for the protest. I know people are going to be back out there tonight. I intend to be out there myself. And there will continue to be actions all across the country uh, today and in uh, uh, the coming days uh, because of, I mean, just this uh, deep feeling of, I don't even know what you call it. Maybe not a disbelief, but I mean, it's just so galling, frankly, that uh, uh, this uh, uh, would even be a potential reality in a country that supposedly prides itself on being so uh, cosmopolitan and forward thinking. But before we get too deep into the nitty gritty of that itself, Chuck, I know you were able to be down at the Supreme Court last night amongst other protesters, talking to people, getting their stories as you always do. And so I I was hoping you could just let us know, you know, what what are some of the things you were hearing? What were people feeling at that time? What was the energy like down at the Supreme Court? And just uh, how did you see that playing out from your perspective? Yeah, well, thanks, Sean. I mean, I was, I was winding down last night, and I get the news that I see a posting, uh, midnight Supreme Court, you know, and uh, change plans. Let's get down there. So I was there from about midnight to uh, three in the morning, and you had a, uh, a few hundred protesters who were out there. I think when you said between gall and disbelief, all of that range of emotions, I mean, it's something that has been talked about in theory and because of the leaker and and i have to give much credit to the leaker whoever that person is who who, uh probably did that as a political move at their own potential risk and expense um there was a range of emotions but there was the anger there was hell no and what's interesting was it's the first time i mean since the biden administration you're, you're you're seeing masses um, in the streets. Um, I did interview a lot of people. There was pain or some people crying. There was a lot of fight back. So you heard, how do we fight back? Um, Some people I interviewed said um, something similar to Bernie Sanders and others. We must codify Roe v. Wade into law. There was uh, those types of discussions. I interviewed a young woman who said, it's time we go on a general strike. We need to withhold our labor um, and take it into our hands and stop wait, waiting for politicians to save us. So there was a range of emotions, but I think a lot of people were sort of grappling with, wow, this could really be a reality. Yeah, and I mean, what's so wild in just looking at how how this has played out? I mean, th- this is not something that happens in a vacuum, uh, nor is it something that has uh, just 
come out of nowhere. I mean, we've seen, particularly recently, um, all of these attempts in different states in the country for different abortion bans and things like that. And really, you know, the right wing in the United States for years has been trying to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. For years, this has been a consistent, ongoing project for the right wing in the United States. And you think about the fact that the Democrats... Even when they have a majority, when they have majority control of the House, the Senate, the White House, they could have passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have legalized abortion in the United States once and for all. It would guarantee this right once and for all in the United States, but they never did. They didn't do it under Obama. Uh, they haven't done it at all, just like the, the Democrats never really a, a fight for, you know, these literal life and death issues that face the people that they say are their base. And not only did Obama welch on um, uh, abortion rights, I feel like I should also raise a fact about how he welched on um, the issue around DACA. And, and this is why our friends in, in the immigration movement uh, call Obama the deporter in chief. He was supposed to be this big, you know, uh, uh, progressive, but he he left him, uh, you know, in the Dust, threw them under the bus as it concerns that issue. And, you know, uh, it's not surprising then, given that history, Chuck, that we hear these kinds of uh, radical sentiments around fight back, general strike. I, I love that because it locates abortion rights, reproductive justice and women's liberation as a class struggle, which it is because it is overwhelmingly poor working and oppressed women who are and will continue to be most impacted by this. Wealthy, ruling class women will always have uh, access to uh, safe abortions because they have the money. But that's not the case for so, so many more. And so when we hear these sorts of things, Chuck, and particularly when we look at uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings uh, at this point and the overall uh, political situation in inside the United States, I, I think it makes a lot of sense that we're seeing both sentiments on the individual level and also movement at the organizational level um, to really develop a movement that's outside of the political mainstream. Because in the United States, of course, we have the Republicans who don't even pretend to be, you know, progressive or forward thinking on this issue. They're uh, misogynists and all these sorts of things. Uh, so that's that. But then you have the Democrats who pretend to be a friend of poor working and oppressed people, but refuse to actually fight or actually do things that are in their power to do to protect these uh, different groups. You know what I mean? And, and so I just think it says a lot about the political moment that we're in and the sorry state of affairs in uh, the U.S. political mainstream. And at least from my perspective, Chuck, I think it's going to take ongoing organized efforts like we saw last night at uh, the Supreme Court, where we'll continue to see in the coming days. It will take that kind of movement uh, uh, to really overturn this issue and, and so many others. I mean, absolutely. And you, you covered a lot of ground. I want to hit a couple of points. I Yes, it's very much a class issue. That was mentioned in many interviews 
last night where people told me, hey, abortions aren't going to stop. They're just going to be more dangerous for for low income and particularly black women. It's going to happen. It's just uh, where you're putting lives at risk. If you're rich, if you're wealthy, you're going to get that abortion anyway. You're going to find that doctor anyway. So it absolutely is a class issue and, and um, with a racial dynamic as well. So there's that. Um, I also interviewed a woman who was talking about state laws, and she's from Kentucky, and she was saying in Kentucky, well, there's only one abortion clinic already. So this has sort of been happening, but without the pushback, without the mass uprising, she was telling how you had to drive three and a half, three hours within Kentucky. And it is interesting that when there's state overturning of abortion laws, you know, there ha- that hasn't produced this uprising. So there's that. And then I want to put a little fine point when you're talking about codifying into law. You were talking about the World Women's Health Protection Act that a number of people have said, you know, we have to pass and it passed the House. And so when you talk to people on the legislative side, they're going to say, well, we can't get Manchin. And I think one other person, it's not cinema. Uh, and we're, we don't have those two votes. Um, and that's going to be the argument against it. But to your point, in 2000, with Obama, in 2007, when he was running for office, he promised Planned Parenthood that, quote unquote, the first thing I'd do as president would be to codify Roe v. Wade into law. And back then they called, he was singing the Freedom of Choice Act. That was the language that said the Women's Health Protection Act. And he had a, a solid, strong majority to do so. There was no mansion in the way. There was no anyone in the way. And when he was approached about it, he, he at the time when he had that majority, said the first he said that it wasn't his highest legislative priority. Well, why was it not his highest legislative priority? He literally had the legislative power to codify it into law so we could end um, this. You know, every four years, will the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade? We had that power. And what you'll hear about critics on both sides, um, some Democrats will blame Hillary Clinton not being president, pointing to the Supreme Court. But what we hear much less about is that this wasn't codified into law when Democrats could have done it. Because it's very much a a, a positive issue when you're campaigning. Republicans are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and it's a a money issue. And so when you get down to it, what has happened is the Democrats chose to have a political wedge issue rather than to secure abortion rights as federal law. That's a matter of fact. Yeah, and I appreciate you digging deeper into the issue with Obama, Chuck, because how is it that as the president of the United States, whose whole image where you were this, you know, progressive, forward thinking person, you were going to be the complete antidote to the racist right wing presidency of George W. Bush. Does that sound familiar? It should. Right. Uh, and then you fix your face to say that uh, abortion rights are not your priority, because what you're saying is that women are not your priority. Women's uh, rights, their uh, uh, fundamental being, are not a priority for you, the president of the United States. And that that really is what's incredible to me. And you know, Chuck, maybe this is an aside, but for me, this is another reminder of just the games that the political mainstream plays on us 
all the time, particularly every two and four years when it's election time, sort of cynically using these deeply important issues to squeeze a vote out of us, only to turn around and do nothing about the issue in and of itself. Matter of fact, I was uh, uh, I was remembering earlier that back in 2019, when uh, Joe Biden was on the, the campaign trail, he said that as president, he would codify Roe v. Wade into law, just like Obama did when he was VP under Obama. And now the funny thing about that is, um, you know, uh, Biden, he, he, he posted this on Twitter. And, and I swear, like our elected officials, at least the Democrats, they are some of the most progressive people in the world on social media. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, man, on social media, they are for the people, ain't they? I mean, just all kinds of ways. Now, never mind the fact that they have uh, the power oftentimes to at least, you know, uh, uh, fight or really advocate for an issue and just choose not to. But it, it's just this really uh, a strange sort of thing. But you fast forward to today when it's uh, really a factor. And we see, you know, I saw earlier Joe Biden put out some some mealy mouth uh, 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 response to this whole thing. I mean, it really is gross because these are the same people that this year and in two years when it's time to elect a president again are going to say, okay, yeah, I know you want uh, Roe v. Wade codified into law. I know you want health care for all. I know you want living wages. I know you want uh, better infrastructure so our bridges aren't collapsing in on us. Uh, I know you want better education. I know you want all these things, but you need to forfeit all of that. Give all of that up. Put that out of your mind and vote for me just so we can keep whoever the Republican is out of office. It's the same cynical game that we see all the time, Chuck. And I feel like this issue with the Supreme Court is is uh, indicative of that. And, and indeed, I've been seeing people post screenshots of uh, emails from the Democrats that looks like they're already fundraising off of this on the one hand and already um, basically saying, well, come November, you know, you have to vote. So we have, you know, a, a pro-choice people in or whatever. So never mind what the Democrats could have done years ago to settle this question, they're just going to keep sort of kicking the can down the road. And however many women suffer as a result, well, from their perspective, it's like, so be it. Well, that's exactly right. You know, there is fundraising. And if you had codified into law earlier, you'd take that fundraising off the table. So, you know, these pieces are connected. And, then, you know, Joe Biden, who's basically been in office since Roe v. Wade, I think in the same year, Roe v. Wade um, became law, Biden came into office. And, he, um, you know, he is, he is Catholic, and he's always been a little uh, about um, uh, abortion. Uh, he says that, you know, he has a personal choice and that he is, uh, you know, he's pro-choice, but he, he, in his personal belief, he is against abortion. But he's also, up to last or two years ago, he was for the Hyde Amendment, which banned federal aid for abortions. And he only overturned it like a year ago with a lot of political pressure. So we have to understand sort of where, you know, Biden hasn't been strong. Well, even Hillary, where so many people online are saying the reason this happened, Hillary lost and it affected the Supreme Court justice. If we recall Hillary, she also picked Tim Kaine as her running mate. And Tim Kaine was not pro-choice. And if you're fervently pro-choice and you believe that that's important, wouldn't you pick as your vice president someone who else is pro-choice? 
So, so we see a lot of um, back and forth and gamesmanship on a very, very serious, serious issue, as serious as any other issue that could have dire consequences. This is not something to play political games with. When you have an, an opportunity to codify into law, you do so, period. And that's not what we've seen. Absolutely. And speaking of Joe Biden and his history of uh, uh, and his historical stance on abortion, you know, back in 2006, there was a video that was unearthed by um, CNN. It was an interview that Biden did with Texas Monthly. And in that interview, Joe Biden said, quote, I do not view abortion as a choice and a right. Adding, I think it is always a tragedy. I think it should be rare and safe. I think we should be focusing on how to limit the number of abortions. So notice he didn't talk about, well, we should be, you know, uh, uh, making this a right for all or giving women uh, the proper support financially and otherwise, whether they decide to, you know, uh, have children or not. He's saying we need to figure out how to to limit abortions. And so, you know, I feel like that's just part and parcel of this whole piece. And, you know, people... It's so exhausting to see these people talk about, oh, well, you know, this wouldn't be the case, you know, if if Hillary was was had been president, you know, I guess because she's a woman that they figured that she's, you know, would be forward thinking on women's rights. I want to remind you all there there are women in Libya. There are women in uh, Honduras. There are women in uh, Syria and Ukraine. And so, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton had a hand in a lot of suffering of women around the world, particularly in the global South. But you see, their suffering is invisibilized. When, when Gaddafi is uh, overthrown, uh, you know, sodomized with a bayonet, lynched in the streets, Libya plunged into uh, uh, an open air slave market. I mean, how do you think women fare in that situation, how do we think women are faring, uh, you know, in a situation in Honduras when uh, the U.S. backs a coup in that country and brings in a straight up dope dealer in Juan Orlando Hernandez, a, a narco oligarch? I mean, my God, we'll be here all day talking about the suffering that uh, uh, Clinton and company have brought to countless people all over this earth for years. What about the women in Haiti? What are y'all talking about, man? Like The answer for you is all the women you name do not count when they are talking about women. If they're outside of America, they're generally not white. Uh, it's, it's not in their lens. And we've, we've seen that. It's not, it's not the correct answer. You're right. But in their lens, it's a very different story. And I also want to, you know, you said a really good point that you go on Twitter and you're like, wow. A lot of these Democrats are progressive. And it's the gap between the words and the budgets that really do it for me. It's like, just to give you an analogy, this week, the owner of the Raiders, Mark Davis, said, I welcome Colin Kaepernick with open arms. And he was getting praise all over the Internet. I'm like, wait a second. That's an owner. He can hire Colin Kaepernick right now. Like, he has complete autonomy and control to hire him. And you have all these people who say, thank you, Mark Davis. Thank you for saying the good words. Thank you for what? Hire him, and then I'll thank you. And I think that dynamic that we saw with Mark Davis and Colin Kaepernick encapsulates the Democratic Party. They're saying one thing, 
but you're doing another. You're, you're saying you want to protect people, and then you're raising the police budget by millions. You're saying um, you care, and then you're raising the military budget uh, uh, by now it's $46 billion. You're raising the ICE budget. So I think here's the thing, Sean. When you're looking at Republicans' um, hate and vitriol, you have to listen to their words. When you're looking at Democrats, you have to look at their budgets. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we know, these officials, Democrat or Republican, are always guided by these moneyed interests that are in their pocket. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I continue to be joined by Chuck Modiano. And, you know, Chuck, real quick, I wanted to um, circle back uh, to a, a, a comment that you made a little while ago. We talked about how someone noted um, about the difficulty of access to abortion services and, and other women's health services in uh, states like Kentucky. And that's actually not that uh, uncommon. I, I mean, it's, it's a similar situation in Mississippi which last time I checked, literally only has one abortion clinic in the state. And then you have even, you have the phenomenon of these, oh man, I forget what they're called, but they're basically fake abortion clinics. And so you go in uh, uh, thinking that, you know, you're going to receive these services or at least be advised on these services. But in reality, this is some uh, institution uh, uh, invariably backed by a church or some uh, some right wing organization that basically tries to, to guilt you out of it or trick you out of it or any or things like this. And so uh, I just wanted it to be said that, uh, you know, this this issue in the South, I think, has been particularly pitched for some time. And another thing that struck me um, about this draft opinion, Chuck, was that it it described uh, abortion rights and public opinion around it as a, quote, rancorous national controversy. Those are the words they used, a rancorous national controversy. So according to the Supreme Court, uh, abortion rights are controversial in the United States. But it's 70 percent approval. So I don't see the controversy. Ex- exactly. I was looking at this uh, poll that was done just in January of this year from uh, the Marquette University Law School. It was a nationwide poll and 72 percent of respondents were opposed to overturning Roe versus Wade. So who is this controversial to? It, it, you know, it seems to me that it's only controversial, you know, for these liberals who want to play games with this life or death issue. It's definitely not controversial for the right wing. They're clear on their position. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I, I don't think that this is I don't necessarily think this is or I suppose it could be uh, an issue of a disconnect between these officials and the masses of people. But what is the character of that disconnect? It is a class disconnect, right? Because 
what is the Supreme Court? These are nine unelected soldiers for capital, warriors of the ruling class who are actually the last line of defense for the ruling class. And of course, they uh, go along with things like this because they are handpicked by that same ruling class. This is the same Supreme Court that upheld slavery as legal until it was ended by the Civil War. Uh, uh, It upheld segregation and Jim Crow apartheid uh, in in 1896 with the Plessy uh, uh, versus Ferguson case. Uh, Even now, we're we're seeing this attempt to roll back uh, the hard-fought voting rights for Black Americans, immigrant rights, uh, uh, union rights, all these sorts of things, you know what I mean? Uh, even down to the uh, uh, the three-fifths compromise, and I'm sure uh, folks are familiar with um, uh, that, you know, counted uh, enslaved Africans who were non-voting as a fraction of a person, as a part of the calculus for deciding how many representatives would be awarded to each state. The Dred Scott decision in 1857 that said that black people had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. This is upheld by the Supreme Court. This has always been a racist, capitalist, uh, a misogynist institution that uh, uh, is basically tasked with justifying and legitimizing uh, uh, the sentiment of the same class that appointed them. And, you know, even if we go back to the very beginning of it, uh, uh, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, the very first one, was a cat named John Jay who was appointed in 1789 by none other than George Washington himself. And uh, John Jay uh, was related to some of the wealthiest families in the United States, either through marriage or by birth. And he was once quoted as saying, those who own the country ought to govern it, basically making the case for an oligarchy in the United States. And I dare say, when you fast forward a few centuries, it looks as though he he got his wish. And so the very character, really the very existence to me, the very existence of the Supreme Court, Chuck, is really uh, uh, such an issue when you see uh, how it really operates, you know? Well, there were a few uh, abolished the court chants I heard. There was a little bit of noise about that um, last night as well. There was also a lot of talk of expand the court. A number of people I interviewed talked about that. I don't know you probably know better about the logistics of, of that, but, but but of course, you know, the Democrats even want that, to, to your point. And to your point about John Jay, what's interesting to close the loop is the, the John Jay School, I believe, of Criminal Justice in New York City, which is named after him to this day. So that's how I know John Jay first um, about that school in New York City. So, you know, I'm not optimistic so much about um, 2022 when you're naming schools from people like that back then. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, it's, it's you know, and <laughs> that was a time when, uh, uh, you know, they would be uh, somewhat more uh, honest about uh, their actual plans for this country. Whereas today in the 20, excuse me, in the 21st century, uh, you know, they have to use these platitudes and euphemisms and things uh, to basically communicate the same message. But, you know, uh, also uh, recently this uh, past weekend, Chuck, uh, there were also uh, protests um, in support of Palestine. There were pro-Palestine 
uh, uh, protests that took place in D.C., I believe in different parts of the country as well. Of course, are standing with Palestine following the attack yet again on the Al-Aqsa Mosque while people were praying and uh, uh, worshiping. I feel like there's a, a lot of connections with a number of different uh, issues, uh, both uh, inside the United States and, and outside of it. So, uh, And I know you were able to be there as well, Chuck. We had a chance to chat a little bit. And so I'm just wondering what you made of that whole piece as well. Yeah, we had a chance to chat. I appreciate speaking to you. I appreciate speaking to many others. And like always, I don't appreciate that. I, I don't see any corporate cameras there. And I say that, that we know that. I covered five free Palestine protests last May when there were incredible attacks um, last May. I've covered, you know, probably so many of them. There never are. However, this is coming in the same context of while Ukraine is getting un unprecedented attention that we've never seen. And you'd think that the unprecedented attention that um, Ukrainians leaving and anyone who is, who is leaving conflict, I, I, I want to, them to you know, receive um, you know, benefits and care and love. I want that anywhere. Anybody's leaving their home. I want that anywhere. But I don't know how all of that could happen and all of this tension could happen. And then we, we, we're talking now about what's happening in the mosque in Palestine, and we can't get, get a word in. And one of the most revealing conversations I had in speaking with a protester named Mimi, she said this, during the Ukrainian conflict, um, it, um, there were images and photos of Palestinians that were mistaken to be Ukrainian. And those images and photos got more attention than they ever got when it actually happened. When they were mistaken to be Ukrainians, they were circulating in the web, they were talking about it, oh my God, this is terrible. And then we thought, oh, that wasn't Ukrainians, that was Palestinians. Okay, let's put that back in the box. And that's amazing to me, that you get attention about your human rights crimes, Israeli apartheid human rights crimes, you have to be mistaken to be Ukrainian. And that's the one that really sat with me. How messed up is that, Sean? Yeah, totally. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe at least one of those videos that originally was purported to be like a Ukrainian child trying to fight like a Russian soldier or something. It was actually I had Tamimi uh, who, you know, uh, was, you know, facing down this troop because of the violence that had been uh, uh, carried out against her family. If memory serves, I believe her little brother uh, was hurt by one of these uh, uh, IDF soldiers or otherwise one of these police or military institutions. And see, the thing about I had to Mimi is, you know, she's uh, she has a fair type of complexion, uh, lighter sort of uh, hair and things like that. So they may have mistaken her uh, for European in that way. And to be sure, Sure, uh, some of these same uh, folks today would not have um, supported Ahed Tamimi, uh, who I believe was incarcerated uh, because of this uh, as well. But like with any time that Palestinians resist, even if it's a child, any form of resistance is considered terrorism when the real terror is uh, the imposition of this racist settler colonial apartheid state of Israel and its genocidal campaign against Palestine. That's the real terrorism, right? And that terrorism is supported uh, first and foremost by the United States to the tune of three and four billion dollars a year. 
And so when we see the destruction against the, the Palestinian people, when we see this bloodshed, this, 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 this ongoing genocide, when Americans see that, those are our tax dollars at work. Right. And so, you know, and even in talking about Ukraine, Chuck, uh, we continue to see the Biden administration, you know, send billions of dollars to support that effort. Meanwhile, when it comes to these, you know, again, these issues like student loans and abortion rights and all of that, there's a shoulder shrug. And the most you might get is, you know, uh, this ridiculous question of how we're going to pay for it. They never ask how we're going to pay for war. They just uh, they just know that the money will be there because they take it. They prioritize it and put it there. Right. And so that's why the U.S. war machine is as massive and sophisticated as it is. You know what I mean? And so the priorities uh, of the leadership of this country, Chuck, I think are clear, be it Democrat or Republican. There's no one within this uh, uh, political mainstream who's actually willing to put themselves uh, on the line and actually be a part of the struggle uh, of poor, working, and oppressed people. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's worth noting that, you know, all of these different issues that have been struggled around throughout time, any sort of rights, any legislation, any positive thing that has been gained by the masses uh, over the years never happened because of the kindness of the heart of elected officials. It was always because of the struggle of the people. And I tend to think, Chuck, that it will take that same kind of effort uh, uh, to really do what needs to be done as it pertains to uh, abortion rights. Um, I, I absolutely agree. You know, we probably haven't made substantive gains since the 1960s um, when when the people in the street and the civil rights movement um, forced Lyndon Johnson in a direction. If you go back um, to FDR, the same thing. People understand the mass movements in the streets were forcing FDR's hand to pass some important um, laws for workers and important policies. And I think that's the same thing here. So I win a couple of People spoke about a general strike yesterday. I said, okay, you know what? Let, let's listen to it. Because a general strike is very different than the people who are saying, hey, we have to vote in November. Okay, so you're saying your, your responsibility, even if it were true, which it isn't, that, that that's going to work, your responsibility is one day out of four years or one day out of two years. No, when people are talking about a general strike withholding their labor um, to, to force change and other forms of protest, it's putting it in the people's hands. It's, it's giving you autonomy. And, and we've seen that. And I think the most recent example of that before these movements were overturned is right now we say the, the 2020 George Floyd uprising, you know, backfired. Joe, uh, Joe Biden is funding more police. Um, the police rhetoric is, is terrible. But, you know, I, I've always said initially it was going the right direction. Um, the college campuses were kicking out police officers from their campuses. They were ending those contracts. You saw some places in Seattle and other in Austin and uh, Texas and some other places that were actually defunding and cutting their budgets. You saw Colorado end qualified immunity. These are incredible um, advances, but it was going in the right direction. And once we took the, the, the foot off the gas pedal, then it started going the other one. Then that foot off the gas pedal coincided with Joe Biden being elected and, and pulling back from this. But I bring the George Floyd uprising up to say 
just on an uprising alone, you could do something. Like, just people in the, in the streets. So when Colorado did end qualified immunity for police officers, and that may now be, you know, uh, uh, go the other way because the foot's off the gas pedal. But when Colorado did that, that was a response to people. That was the governor just did it as a response to people. It didn't go, didn't have to have a whole legislative process. And I think what happens is people forget or don't know or don't feel empowered about what's possible. They really, really don't. And one last thing on, on the foot on the gas pedal of protest, because my view, and I may think I may have shared it with you in the past, is the problem is that our protests don't work, as many people have told me, as many people think, as many critics are. I understand where that sentiment comes from after so many um, have failed and how people are gassed. But the, usually the answer is protests aren't long enough and protests aren't strong enough. So the, the historical piece that I always say is that in the Montgomery bus boycott, if everybody gave up after one year, said, you know, we gave it a shot, we gave it a whole entire year, let's just go home, this ain't going to work, uh, 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 the, the segregationists win, well, they would have won. But it went a year and 15 days. And after a year and 15 days, so it was incredible Montgomery bus boycott, protesters, well, then they caved in. Then they got the win. But it would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's a waste of time if they ended it after a year. And I use that example as essentially most protests that fail. You cut it out too quick. You went home. And I know people don't want to hear that because protesting is exhausting. I, I've been doing covering it for over 10 years in a very strong way as a journalist and many more years um, beyond that. And it could be exhausting. It could be debilitating. But when there are numbers and when there are people together, they feed off each other and they get the support is for one another. And you have to keep your foot on the gas pedal. And never has that been more important than right now when they're trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, I'm often quite frustrated by this thing that we hear from people about like, oh, um, protests don't work. Well, I think that's only true if you see protest as uh, just a single action that you can take that will then magically unlock all those things that you want to happen. I think on the one hand, some of us are confused about strategy and tactics. When you talk about uh, a movement, uh, uh, things like mobilizations, demonstrations, rallies, speakouts, and things like that, that's a big part of it. That's how you build support. That's how you do a kind of a, a public political education. There's so many other things that people uh, 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 have to do if what they're trying to do is sustain an actual struggle. And, and I'm going to keep it funky. There's also there's a there's a group of people who who say that sort of thing, but they're not even involved. And like you you and these are people who they're not going to bust a grape. They're not going to do anything one way or the other. They have an issue with protest, but they don't have any alternatives. They have not yet come up with, you know, whatever miraculous thing is going to replace it. And so frankly, these are people that have given in to cynicism and they're no good uh, to the masses of people who are willing to actually do something and be active in a number of ways to actually fight this struggle. But I mean, to be very honest, I just don't respect this uh, uh, thing from people every time something like this happens and they wail about what does and doesn't work when they've done absolutely nothing to contribute. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Chuck Modiano is here. And, you know, Chuck, following from uh, where we left off in the break, another thing that I see a lot, and I'm sure you have as well, is this uh, reasoning that, well, there's no point in protesting because, quote unquote, they don't care what you think. They, meaning um, the government or whichever official we might be appealing to in that moment. That's completely false. Uh, These people care a lot about uh, what we think. I mean, even if we just talk about last night outside the Supreme Court during that demonstration at midnight, if they didn't care what we thought, then why would they put up barricades uh, uh, in anticipation for uh, demonstrations? Matter of fact, you were just talking about the George Floyd uprising. If uh, officials didn't care what we thought, then why was there an all out military assault on the movement in the streets? And so I just think we have to have some clarity about uh, uh, what's really at stake. Just because these uh, officials don't like, you know, come out of the Supreme Court or whatever and go, all right, you guys are right or whatever, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that that they don't care. The fact that they care is evidenced by their actions. But um, I was also thinking and I wanted to ask you this um Chuck as a journalist because we were talking about that video with Ahed Tamimi that was being presented as you know uh something to do with Ukraine well that's I mean that's misinformation and that's not the only piece of misinformation that has been popularized as it pertains to this uh conflict emanating from the United States and the West I mean just yesterday it was reported that you know this so-called uh, ghost of Kiev who was you know uh, there was this legend that he was a Ukrainian fighter pilot he shot down 40 Russian jets I mean that's now been revealed to be a hoax you know what I mean and you know this is uh NBC News and these other mainstream platforms that are uh, publishing about this, but that's misinformation. But because it's a narrative that was, you know, beneficial to U.S. imperialism, then it, it it's basically able to slide without any accountability, even when it's revealed to be a lie. And I feel like we see a lot of the similar things um, with coverages of social movements to the extent that they do. I mean, I even saw an article last night or about last night that basically gave like a both sides kind of uh, uh, perspective. I mean, it, it was making it, it was given like equal treatment to both uh, the people who were advocating for abortion rights and uh, the so-called uh, pro-life people. But correct me if I'm wrong, Chuck, but by all accounts, I mean, the, the pro-life people were a relatively small element at that demonstration. Sure, they were present, but to make it seem as though this is like a face-off between two equals is just fundamentally not true. And I think it's just in indicative of serious issues of analysis and reporting in the corporate-owned media. Well, well, that's how we got here. So we know, as we mentioned, at least 70% are against the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? And I would say yesterday, I saw those protests. It's funny, because a couple people called me over, and I said, I'm not covering them. Those six people? So you're telling me we got hundreds out here, and those six people are coming because you want a nice little video of controversy. I'm supposed to... Go, go to those six people. I'm not paying them any mind. 
Then why, why would I pay them? Why would I amplify those six people? So if it's a 70-30 split in public opinion, and it's a 95%, the 5% split last night in people who showed up, why am I going to make the 5% sound like 50%? That is bad journalism. That's flawed journalism. Now, I will say this. If 50% of the people out there were uh, 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 pro-life, I would be, as a journalist, uh, somewhat obligated to show that side. I wouldn't necessarily center that side or focus on that side, but the reality is half the people there, that that was their stance, and I, I'd have to show it. But, but why am I giving 5%, 50% attention? So all those people are, who do that, they're not about journalism. They're about getting some clicks on the web. They're about finding some kind of controversy, maybe for their own profit. And that, that's ridiculous. And that's malpractice. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I just think we got to ask ourselves, like, why is it that, you know what I'm saying? And during any given time at any given a protest or demonstration, I mean, you can count on seeing, you know, someone like Chuck Modiano uh, out there uh, covering it and seeing what the reality is. But, you know, oftentimes <laughs> it seems like, Chuck, you're either by yourself or it's either you and maybe a few other uh, uh, fellow independent journalists uh, that are doing a similar thing, like, you know, the the Washington Revolutionary or, or any other number of, of these types of platforms. It, it's a very sort of... It, it's a grassroots effort when we talk about uh, movement journalism or, or justice journalism, and it comes from a very different perspective. But I would imagine, Chuck, that that is aided by the fact that, you know, you're not bankrolled by, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or, or any of these other uh, billionaire uh, CEOs that uh, control the news media in the United States. And so your overall analysis, uh, I think, is different to begin with, and therefore the coverage is different. Yeah, I'll say, Sean, I got a separate job. I work mostly for free when you, people see me out in the street. This is just, this is just me as a citizen doing this journalism. Um, um, you know, I do sports writing, and I get paid for that. I have a separate job. I get paid for that. And, and unfortunately, and, and here, here lies the problem, right? The, the, the handful you mentioned, the same eight of us, or, um, you know, depending on the event, there are going to be two of us there, or going to be eight of us there, same eight people in D.C. And they're all, we're all doing this because we want to give the truth. And we're all doing this at cost, or even if it's a, the lift ride to get down there, it's at a, we're doing it at a negative expense, right? And, and I'm not complaining or whatever, but why well, I am complaining at the system, I'm saying I'm not so much personally complaining as I am complaining about, we have a system of journalism that if you want to tell the truth, you basically got to work for free. Because if you're going to tell the truth, you're going to lose your job. I recently posted one of my favorite quotes of um, Noam Chomsky when he's being interviewed um, by someone else who has a more of a pro-war position. And that person says, and Noam Chomsky is making the argument that, um, anyway, the, I, I butcher that. The, the, the man is saying, are you telling me I'm censoring myself as a journalist right here? And he said, no, I'm not telling you you censored yourself. I believe you believe everything you're saying. But if you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting, Right. So if you did it, if you do believe and have the courage to show that Palestinians are under attack, a truth of a human rights crime, you ain't going to be working for MSNBC. You ain't going to be working for CNN. You ain't going to be working for ABC, CBS. So we have a system that won't allow you to tell truth. So we have a very part of that. System. And that system is journalism and capitalism are inherently in conflict, inherently. 
So when you're saying, well, we do this, but we get ratings, well, that, that's a problem right there. And then when you start to talk about groups that influence media or, or big pharma because every other commercial is a, um, a commercial for some medication, well, why would you expect that same network to have a responsible debate on health care? They can't. You're asking them to give up billions of dollars for that responsible debate. So we have a structural flaw that capitalism and journalism are married in bed, and that is inherently evil, that partnership. Yeah, and what you're saying, I think, is kind of what is at the root of this, this all-out attack on alternative media that we've been seeing lately. I mean, generally, excuse me, I think um, connected to uh, the war in Ukraine. And, and so it's like, on the one hand, there's no space, like none whatsoever, for people with uh, these kinds of politics or with these kinds of perspectives in uh, the corporate-owned press. But uh, in reality, they don't want dissenting perspectives really to exist or to have any platforms. And that's what I think has been unfolding over the last several weeks. Under the guise of attacking, you know, so-called Russian disinformation, there's been uh, uh, an all-out attack on alternative media in general and seizing people's uh, PayPals and uh, uh, calling people conspiracy theorists and all these sorts of things. And so there's no room for you in the corporate owned media, but they want to make it to where there is no place where these kinds of politics can have a voice and have a hearing. And what makes it so sick is that it's put forth to the American people as if they're being done um, a a, a favor because they're keeping, you know, the nasty so-called Russian misinformation um, away from people. When in reality, what has happened is that the uh, American people have been robbed of the opportunity to make an informed decision. You know, and, and, and that is really what I think a lot of that um, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, boils down to. And so this is why I think it's important that we continue to do this uh, uh, kind of work, Chuck, because, I mean, it's just so many stories that would not get told, so many movements and, and efforts that are being built and sustained and uh, uh, nurtured that wouldn't get any kind uh, of coverage and all these sorts of things. But uh, and I want to note this uh, again, I feel like there's also sort of a pitched class aspect to that as well. I mean, when we look at who are the funders of the mainstream uh, media and then we look at the character of, you know, the content that we often see, you know, in, in, in progressive and, and left wing and, and socialist and, and other alternative kinds of media content, there's simply not one in the same. And to put it simply, uh, the mainstream media is part Part of an effort to maintain this status quo. They are part of the effort to keep things as they are and to not upset the apple cart and to try to dissuade the rest of us from upsetting the apple cart. You know, so this this the way this capitalist system is designed uh, tries to keep the masses of people from wanting to put forth the effort to, to organize and fight. And I really feel, Chuck, that the corporate owned media is part and parcel of that same effort. I mean, that it absolutely is. <laughs> and I think you were making reference on the PayPal accounts to Minpress News, and Minpress News has put out some invaluable information that I certainly couldn't find anywhere else. And I think they what they did, they stopped their PayPal account, and it showed how there are many ways 
that um, the system will work against you. So some people have had their Twitter suppressed. Bam, necessaries has been hit as well. So, but in the case of Mint Press News, I think what they they really specialize in is showing the media headline of the difference of say when the United States had an Iraq War and how that was covered versus the the current conflict in Ukraine. And and so, you know, we have to have the same lens. We have to have the same analysis. But when you have those dissenting voices, we're seeing repercussions. And I think you know about that from where you sit personally. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's true because, and, and I raise this all the time on the show about, you know, how Americans, those of us in the United States collectively, have a very poor grasp of history. We have a very uh, uh, short memory. And because uh, really, I think because American exceptionalism demands it, because if you actually remember what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and what continues to happen in Yemen and uh, so many other countries that we could name, well, then you'll have a point of reference to say, well, maybe this situation isn't exactly what I thought it was. I mean, after all, we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction. We were lied to about, you know, the Naira testimony and, you know, babies getting knocked out of incubators and things like that. We've been lied to a lot over the years. We've been lied to uh, uh, out of an effort to gin up support uh, basically for U.S. imperialism. But see, the the counter the 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 counterweight to that, if you try to raise that context today, Chuck, is you get hit with a quote unquote whataboutism. And so now if you raise this uh, 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 relevant political and historical context, then you're basically accused of, you know, supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine or things like that, or otherwise being some kind of slavish uh, apostle to Vladimir Putin as an individual, which is, of course, absurd. But when the American people are are having their consciousness sort of of constantly being um, um, just trampled, frankly, by this messaging from the ruling class and the government on top of having these alternative voices uh, deplatformed, as we've been talking about and put under attack in different ways. Well, then this is why the propaganda is able to reach so deep to the point where Americans watch the news and think they're thinking, but they're actually being indoctrinated. Right. And so it's no small task to, you know, uh, try to be some kind of uh, corrective to that, because we're talking about something that has been happening nonstop for years and years and years by these uh, uh, really powerful uh, corporate entities. But uh, fundamentally, uh, if we look at uh, uh, journalism in this way, Chuck, I mean, I've always seen it excuse me, as its own form of uh, political education. And so this is how we really begin to decompress for all of that, by talking to people on the street, by understanding what the concerns are, by hearing, excuse me, what they think a solution is. And most importantly of all to me, helping to bring people into an organized effort and a movement to fight these injustices wherever we find them. And, you know, because it's just clear that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, none of these people are are coming to save us. There is no uh, miracle that's going to emerge from the political mainstream in the United States that is going to uh, uh, keep this rot 
from deepening in this country. Uh, and as such, we have to organize to resist. Well, we thank you so much, Chuck, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Chuck Modiano so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.